In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Not too long ago, at a local high school, three military recruiters showed up to address a group of outgoing seniors. Graduation was just a few months away, and the military men and their uniforms were there for obvious reasons. To articulate to these graduating young men and women some of the benefits that joining the military would afford them. The meeting was to last 45 minutes, and each recruiter, Army, Navy, and Marine Corps, would have 15 minutes to talk about their particular branch of uh, military service. Well, the Army and Navy recruiters got a bit carried away and ran over their allotted time, which left the Marine recruiter a whopping two minutes to make his appeal to this auditorium filled with young people. So as he stood up and went to center stage in front of the microphone, he looked out out on them, and he stood silent at attention for a full 60 seconds. Then he opened his mouth, and he said this. I doubt whether there are two or three of you in this room who could even cut it in the Marine Corps. I want to see those two or three of you immediately following the dining hall when we're dismissed. And with that, he smartly turned around and sat at his seat. Soon as the gathering had ended, he went into the cafeteria and his table was surrounded by a mob of kids. They acted without delay because in many ways he'd appealed to that heroic dimension in the heart that always wants something more. And I share that with you this morning because before us lies an even higher call, something that doesn't just call to the heroic dimension of the human heart, but the very desire of the human heart to find its purpose and its place in life and to find all things set right. And as believers, we know that that only comes when we choose to follow Jesus. And we hear this call before us once more in Mark 8 as we embark on this Lenten journey together. And I'd invite you to follow along in your Bibles if you have them in Mark 8, or to follow along in the screens if you're in person as we look at the cost of discipleship and consider um, three lessons that arise therein as we reflect upon it this morning and the benefit that we receive as we do so. So as we open to it, we reach this moment in context in Mark's account of Jesus' ministry, where Jesus begins to openly talk about what will come, namely his death and his resurrection. Now, it comes on the heels, if you were to skim your Bible in the chapters leading up to this, of so many different things, numerous miracles, numerous showdowns between Jesus and the religious leaders, and most recently it comes on the heels of Peter's confession that Jesus is Lord. And that's all important because as we arrive at verse 31, the reason that Jesus speaks so plainly about what will transpire is because of that, namely that Jesus um, has just heard Peter and we would assume subsequently the disciples as well, that they're finally ready to receive this news, this next lesson. Much like students ready for one lesson that builds upon the last, Jesus could talk to them so openly about what was coming because 
they have fully articulated what they've wrestled in their hearts up to this point, that Jesus indeed is Lord, that he is the Messiah. And so this next lesson, this new lesson that Jesus shares with them, tells them that their Messiah that they have just proclaimed faith in won't just perhaps face danger or some uncertainty, but with no uncertain terms, Jesus says he's going to walk straight into danger, that certain death lies ahead, not only for him, but for them as well, if they're going to choose to continue to confess, not with just their lips, but their lives, what it means to follow Jesus. Death, both literally, as we know, in every case of the apostles, as well as figuratively, as Jesus lays out as well. So on the heels of this, no sooner does Jesus finish this teaching that we see Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. Now, we don't have the exact record of what Peter said, but the gospel writers don't pull any punches so as to paint a rosier picture of the apostles to make us think that they are some super Christians in any way. Peter clearly takes issue, and rightly so, with what Jesus has just said from his perspective. It makes no sense. Everything they understand about the Messiah as contained in the Old Testament, as we call it, in the covenant up to this point, um, doesn't seem to square up to this. Messiahs don't face defeat, but victory. And yet, Jesus says that victory comes through defeat in this moment. Messiahs don't get killed by authorities. They overthrow authorities. And yet, Jesus says the only way that the authorities will be overthrown is if Jesus willingly places himself in their hands. The Messiah that Jesus is, that Peter has just confessed, that he's just placed all his confidence and hope in, says the next move is to go and die. And so Peter rightly takes issue with that. It makes no sense at all. It's as though Jesus says, we're going to go play a football game, we're going to let them score 24 points, and then we'll take the field. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense from any perspective that Peter can look at it. And yet, Jesus' response to Peter's reaction is both swift and, in many ways, to us, it looks very harsh. But it reveals to us a very valuable first lesson about the cost of discipleship. Jesus makes in no uncertain terms that the plan of God, walked out by God incarnate, Jesus Christ, is the only plan. And any opposition to God's plan is satanic. It is from the accuser. There is no room for various discussions or viewpoints. There's no room for, well, I kind of want to do that, but I kind of want to do this. I mean, Jesus says it's either this or that. There is no if, ands, or buts. And Peter's confronted with this, that he has to rearrange his entire viewpoint if he would continue to walk with Jesus and set all that aside. I believe therein is a first reminder for us about the cost of discipleship this morning, and it's this, that it rearranges our viewpoint as well. And it must, and it will, because it demands nothing less for Peter and the apostles in that moment, yes, but at every point throughout church history, at every generation, at every change and chance along the way, the church must struggle not to live good and upstanding lives or do the quote-unquote 
godly or goodly thing, but they must always ask, what is God's vantage point? And if we stand in opposition to that, we stand contrary to God. And there's just absolutely no middle ground at all. And here's the thing, doing those things that Jesus taught, walking in the ways that God has called us to, will look like madness to the world. It'll look like madness to us at times as well. And perhaps maybe there's the confirmation that we're on the right path. From the point of the kingdom of God, God's kingdom is coming to earth and it will overturn and challenge and reshape every human assumption about what's important in life. It'll challenge allegiances to families, to country, to kindred goals, to bank accounts, to aspirations, to the use of our time and talents. It will confront all of it. And in fact, if it doesn't touch on some aspect of your life, you haven't really embraced the full aspect of what it means to be a disciple. It will touch on everything. The message of the gospel isn't just new here, of course, in Jesus' words. We actually see it throughout all of Scripture up to this point. In fact, we see it in the call and then uh, later, as we see this morning, in the testing of Abraham, um, that he too had to square up with that. In the um, testing of Abraham and the sacrifice of Isaac, a lot of times we can't get around the fact that God would ask of Abraham that he would sacrifice his son, and people get wrapped up in that, and rightly so. It's a big point. But we shouldn't miss the deeper point. Who is Isaac? Isaac represents God's promise, God's covenant to Abraham, that from Abraham he would make a great nation and people. And that's huge because that covenant is what God is asking Abraham to lay down. The very thing that God has promised, and let's be clear, God never transgresses on his promises, but he's testing Abraham to see, do you love me? Will you follow me because of who I am? or because of what I've said I'd give to you. And so he's challenged to confront that. And it's challenged again in the words of Jesus. It's challenged at every point down throughout Christendom. In the early church in Acts, the fledgling church was called to hold all things in common, as our namesake Barnabas did, laying down his inheritance, which seems crazy from the world's standard for the advancement of the gospel, while a few chapters over, Ananias and Sapphira, by contrast, try to hedge their bets a little bit, and it does not go well for them. It's challenged the church down throughout the ages in every kingdom and culture to conflict with those cultures and kingdoms and countries where they have ended their lives in strife and martyrdom. It's required the church not to get comfortable, to always pull in life, lost souls, it will disrupt the community of any church at any given time and all the relationships you have with others. It makes no sense that we would always be bringing in new people that will disrupt uh, the family feel of any given church, but that's the call of the gospel. It calls us to let go of things we've done that we love and beloved and pick up things we don't want to do because God's told us to do them. It looks like madness from the world's standards, and it should because... From a kingdom perspective, God is changing everything. It challenges every aspect of our lives and leaves us with these words of Jesus in verse 33 there, will we set our minds on the things of God or will we set our minds on the things of man? But it doesn't end there. In fact, that in and of itself would be a pretty high bar. But Jesus pushes it even further if we look back in verse 34 for just a moment. 
It's not just a confrontation of ideals, but it requires action. Jesus doesn't just teach the broader group that they're going to have all their assumptions challenged or their viewpoints confronted, but he says the next step is that you lay it all down, that you give up those things, that you put to death those allegiances and ideas to take up your cross. That's what that means, to lose your life from the world's perspective so that you might gain everything, and we'll turn to that in just a moment. Because God knows the only way that the principalities and powers of this world that have such a grip upon the world and our hearts can be defeated is when we radically put those things to death. Whether it's the loves of our lives that we don't want to quite quit nursing, or whether it's the things that God calls us to do that we're not really ready to do yet, the only way that we find victory is when the Holy Spirit has such a grip on us that there's absolutely no room for anything else. We can't live in the in-between. The gospel does not allow us that opportunity. It's not a pleasant life, the walk of discipleship. It's not easy. It's demanding. It's dangerous. And it's risky. That's what we see before us. And that's the journey of Lent that leads us to the cross. It doesn't just allow us to have a few minor adjustments to our lives where we want them. No, the second lesson about the cost of discipleship is this. Not only does it rearrange your viewpoint, but it requires your all. It requires everything, everything in your life. I'm using a play on words. The cost of discipleship is actually a book. Um, it's from a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a hard read, but I'd encourage you at some point to tackle it. Here's Bonhoeffer's words and then a little bit more about Bonhoeffer himself. He wrote these words at a very tumultuous time. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out his own eye, which causes him to stumble. It's the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Those words were penned in the tumult of the days leading up to the Second World War. Bonhoeffer lived in Germany, and we know what transpired in Germany in world history. And as he saw his country turn to evil, he didn't just stand up for moral values or things that should be right from a, a, a kind of basic human rights issue. He pointed to the gospel time and time again, and he listened to the Lord on where he was called to speak out, and he did, and it cost him his life. And that is the call of the disciple in this and every age that we're called to reflect on as well. Will we invest in the kingdom of God, even in times of uncertainty like this? Will we let go of our ego and pride to tell others about Jesus when we are so convinced nothing else matters and yet we have trouble knowing where to start? Will we take steps to repent and return to the Lord and embrace Him with our whole heart from those things which draw us from Him when we know that's what's called of us? Will we leave our nets and follow Him? Anything less than that is cheap grace. Why would we do this? Why would you and I um, pursue that? Why such a high call? Well, the call is high, but so are the rewards. Look at verse 37. There's the good news. Jesus passes through death 
to life as we know. He becomes victorious. His kingdom is established. It has been and will be fully established. And as it's coming, when it finally arrives and fully is established, for those who have forsaken all else but for the kingdom of God and a pursuit of Christ Jesus, they have a share of something far greater than they could ever imagine. Far greater than a family name, far greater than a legacy or your name on some great work that you've achieved, far greater than your retirement account, far greater than your kingdom or country, far greater than anything, because you have a share in a kingdom that will not pass away, that is never in trouble, and that cannot be overthrown. You see, all this leads us to the final point, which is this, about the cost of discipleship. Not only does it require that you rearrange your viewpoint, not only does it require that you lay down everything, but the rewards you receive for doing so far exceed anything you could ever give up to get there. Not only does it give us the very thing we desire in our human hearts, it gives us the rootedness that we wander through this life looking for, It gives us the reward um, that we are seeking but can't even articulate because it finds within itself, namely the reward that is to finally dwell back in the presence of God. It calls back to the very reason we're created from a biblical worldview in Genesis, namely in the image of God. It's a return to the garden. It's a return to everything that we saw that was so blissful for a few split seconds and then was ripped away. It's a return to to everything that we look for. You and I get to be a part of that, and our soul then is at rest. My friends, the cost of discipleship is high, and woe be it for me or anyone who would ever stand before you in a church and tell you otherwise, because it's far greater than anything you'll ever be asked to do in your life, but it's also far greater in what you will receive, because the cost has already been paid Don't miss out in this life in all that God purposes. You're not just buying your time till you get there, but God purposes to do something in you, namely that you look more like him when you arrive at that place, that you usher in the kingdom of God, and in every turn along the way, you might catch glimpses of what's happening, and there's nothing greater than catching even just a moment of that in our own lifetime. Anything else falls short. Don't neglect the call of the disciple. And as we move through this season of Lent, might I suggest one practical way to do that is to find a way to surrender in your heart in new ways. What is that area of your life? And it doesn't usually recall a lot of recall in our lives that we kind of don't want to go there. Something we, we nurse in our lives that we know we need to square up with God but we're just not quite there yet. It's the Augustinian, you know, I want to be saved, but just not yet. What is that? What is that? Or perhaps what is that area of your discipleship that you're like, God, I'll give you all my money, but just don't ask more of my calendar. Or I'll give you all my time, but just don't touch my pocketbook. Or whatever it may be. Where is it that God, you want to kind of keep him at bay? And would you be willing to even just start by saying, God, I really am terrified to even open this dialogue, but I know I need to. And would we be willing to entrust ourselves to the one who has paid the ultimate price, namely that for your soul, so that you might look a bit more like him? What might that be? Open a dialogue with the Lord. That is what this season of Lent is about, a short journey, some 40 days, 
And my hope for you is that on the other side of it, you can say, I really wrestled with it. It wasn't easy. I'm not there yet, but I at least said the words that needed to be said to even open the dialogue with God. Because that's the journey of the Christian life. Namely, one that rearranges our viewpoint, one that requires everything of us and nothing less, and one that gives us far more than we could ever even begin to fathom or ask of God. Yes, the cost of discipleship is high, but the cost of your soul is priceless. Jesus gave it all for you. That's the season we're in. And he asks nothing less of you in return. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.